Hello and welcome to What Moves Us, the podcast where we ask, what moves us? Or more accurately, what's going to move us in future? With the Rail Innovation Group's Johanna Randall and Liam Henderson, we look at debates, themes and decisions of the minutes that will impact on the way we get about in the future. Hi Liam, how are you? I am good. It is uh, 29th of February, leap day, and I'm very excited that we'll be talking to Chris John's later on from Passageway as our guest of the podcast. Um, before that, tell me about your your week. My week, um, gosh, I d- I don't know what's what's been going on in my week. I don't know that that that's really stumped me the question because obviously I've been putting together a tender which is probably really boring for our listeners. But obviously, but I've been doing that with you and Debs. Only so that- if you've learnt lessons learnt about public sector procurement to help. <laughs> I think actually, well, I mean, I, I think what was really interesting about that procurement, I think it was the first time that I'd used the social value tool, right? And right. I thought it was really interesting because I thought oh, I thought I could pick and choose, but what I learned was that there was about thirty of them were actually just mandatory to the tender, and you had to do them whether you could do it or not. And the thing that I found hardest to fill on and on it was not the fact that we couldn't deliver lots of interesting stuff; it was the fact that they wanted us to commit to carbon zero. And what I was trying to work out was that I was thinking as a as a startup SME. Yeah who we all work from home. Generally, we all travel by train or some form of public transport or cycle or whatever most of the time. How do we, how do we, how do we fill that in? Because we're already pretty good as in a comparison to other things. So I, so I've, so my, the only way I could work that, and you couldn't, you couldn't put in that we were already good. You couldn't put that, <laughs> was, you, you weren't allowed to put in a baseline because it was called double counting. Because if we counted our train journeys, it was called double counting because that's already measured somewhere else within the system. Oh, wow. So I committed us to planting trees right. in order to meet the target. <laughs> Doesn't that very future proof for organizations that are carbon zero? How will they apply in future? No, it doesn't, because I'm sure we probably could have done much more imaginative stuff had the tool been designed differently. And I think that's probably part of the thing that we always talk about is the challenges of being an SME or startup. And I know that when we speak to Chris, he alludes to some of this as well, but we don't, we're not thinking of it in terms of social value at the moment. We're thinking of it in terms of just pure procurement, how it's, it's set up for big corporations that need to reduce their carbon or or big corporations that have lots of people who can you know do some of this stuff for them rather than half a dozen people in a startup where we're all pretty agile pretty low carbon footprint anyway yeah okay in the future we can we can put in getting um um solar panels put on our roofs or something because <laughs> we work from home <laughs> true that on net zero heating <laughs> We'll all move to a warm country. We don't need heating. Um, I have you to be might a... in a warm country, being in the south. <laughs> Definitely balmy and warm at the moment. And then, of course, you've been to a conference. Yes. Well, I went to Interchange, which is in Manchester, um, which is always nice to go visit. Um, Interchange is, it seems to be the conference for sort of public authorities involved in either transport or regional development so there were the sub national transport boards represented there and there were the combined authority sort of transport force um represented there all the suppliers um i was there to 
genuinely just see what was going on on behalf of our members because I think it's a commitment for the members to go. It's not sort of a targeted buying, selling marketplace. It's more of like an information gathering. Um, Andy Burnham did a speech at the end of the first day about what Manchester was doing in response to the cancellation of HS2. Not a hard, His message was more positive and optimistic than you would have thought. His gripe mostly was about access for all on the rail network, that it's very slow. But in terms of conversations on the day, I just thought it was interesting. My takeaway was that you've got these, apart from transport from the north, um, there is other sub-national transport bodies around the country that are, like you've got transport for the east, transport for the southeast, transport for sort of extreme, no, transport southeast, um, mid England's economic heartland. And they're all working out a policy for interregional connections and how they want their region to work together as a better block, which one I thought was interesting is because already just now made the region silos because the into and out a bit is less of a focus. Um, but what I noticed was that there seemed to be sort of a disconnect between, let's say, uh, the Midlands Connect area, which includes West Midlands, and then you'd go over to the booth of Transport for West Midlands, um, which is the combined authorities Transport for area, and they were having like detailed schemes, and we could discuss like they wanted to run this scheme to serve this area. This would this would be upgraded. You'd have a station here. But then if you talk to sort of Midlands Connect, the whole regional one, they're still talking about policy and nice-to-haves and ambitions. And it's like there's a, there seems to be a disconnect between like the much more localised areas who are just sort of ploughing ahead with, with projects and the whole region, which is still developing the policy. Um, so it seems to be going the other way around. It's in, it's interesting that that force isn't it you know because do you do you need policy vision and ambition or have we got too much of that and should we just get on and build stuff well, because, want to say because the local you could area... almost say that's the failure of hs2 that there was too much discussing and not enough building and getting on with delivering because if we hadn't have had you know the 10 million reviews or whatever gone into it we were geo and delays and and etc 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 we would only be two years away from having the first phase open yes um yeah i mean that i could understand why it was happening that way because particularly the people we were talking to the west midlands were I mean, they knew exactly what the local problems were, so they were finding solutions to the local problems, not how to get around the whole region and how to build a bigger region. So I guess they're targeted to doing different things. It's just the timescales seem to be different. One other takeaway was that there is no sort of, there is no, sorry, so there is, you have transport, you have the Greater Manchester Combined Authority, the Westmoreland's combined authority, the Merseyside combined authority. So all the ones in England are getting sort of city regions. Uh, whereas in Scotland, there are no city regions for Glasgow or Edinburgh. So those cities don't end up as powerful a voice compared to English cities In as as, we, as time goes forward. Um, because the Scottish government has control over those cities more so than the English, the UK government does over English cities. So I guess, though, I mean, like some of that is 
kind of geography though isn't it Be- you know and the way you know some of the systems have been yeah I mean like it's history culture geography all sorts of things all all into one because if you think you know sort of like where we were 30 years ago where everything was controlled you know from the center and then with sort of like the 97 election we've had you know periods of devolution of various aspects of it in order to give more local control you know that devolution to Scotland you know and to Wales and that has come in its entirety as a nation hasn't it and it hasn't it hasn't sought to put um cities and regions up against each other it's yeah they've tried to look at it holistically in a balanced way because if you were to I mean, I'm going to say if you were to compare Scottish transport policy or Welsh transport policy versus, should I say, UK transport policy or English transport policy? It doesn't exist for England or or UK, does it? It only, you know, so so there's almost a, yeah, and the priorities are set differently. You know, it's not send, it's it's not set in sort of like this scheme versus that scheme. It's set within the concept of the overall goal, which is net zero. <laughs> Yeah, but as as I go back to what I was saying before, you might end up with a situation where because there is more local uh, powers coming forward in English city regions, you'll end up with more locally focused solutions Whereas in, to fix specific local problems, uh, whereas in Scotland, you'll end up with a, a wider interregional uh, vision. Yeah, and I, and that comes back to the ge- the geography thing because if you think about you know sort of like, um, does is it something like seventy percent of the population of Scotland live in twenty percent of the 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 land space, which is the central belt? <laughs> yeah. So it has to be so, one, I guess. Anyway, uh, it kind of leads nicely into you know talking about that into what I'll be doing next week is because I'll be going to the north of the border conference, which is the conference for Scotland. Ooh, where's that? So that's at Glasgow next week. So that's that'll be exciting. I, I've got two days out next week, both in Glasgow. You can do a podcast from there. Um, not on the day, but I can do on the day after and say what we talked about. That would be exciting. Committed. Right uh, now, it's the time for us to join with our guest, Chris Johns from Passageway. So, Chris, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Thanks, Liam. And, and thanks so much for inviting me on today to have uh, a chat with you guys. Um, so a little bit about Passageway. Uh, we're a startup company. Um, what we do is we encourage customers to choose public transport uh, through the uh, uh, information that we present on real-time digital signs. So what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that we take real-time passenger information and put it out there into the community in ways that make it easy for people to understand, interpret, and act on. I'm very thankful that you introduced that fully, so I don't have to follow, ask you any follow-up questions. But let's <laughs> let's step back a bit. So you called Passageway. Uh, what inspired the name? Well, we set up the company um, to provide these digital signs. And, you know, it's, it's based on the nudge theory. I don't know if you know too much about nudge theory, but it's... Oh, I do. Are you a follower of David Halpin? That, uh, yeah, David Halpin. And there was a couple of other guys. Uh, Roger, Richard Thaler, I think, is the guy who wrote the book as well. Richard, Richard Thaler, I've got the book here, actually. Hang on a second. I was saying, I think I've got it on my bookshelf as well over there. Yeah. 
Yeah, Richard. I think Chamberlain, I think that did, didn't 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 he win a um a um the um Nobel Prize for Economists for the uh, economics for the um for the book. He might well have done. And according to my version that I've got here, uh, the Sunday Times has called it hot stuff as well. It's <laughs> sort of like a... <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so, you know, they, they work on this idea of um, liberal paternalism. And liberal paternalism is that there are these people, which effectively is all of us to some degree or other, called choice architects. And what choice architects do are to, they can influence how people behave by presenting information or decision options uh, in a favourable manner. So basically, you're, it, it's like taking, uh, if you, I mean, the classic example um, is, you know, the sort of uh, organ donation, which changed in the UK to being, you know, physically opting in to opting out. Uh, so that many more people now opt in to well they don't they don't they're already opted in to do uh, organ transplant so that's a simple version of nudge but really what we're saying is that we as choice architects can make it easier for people to choose public transport by making uh, the information easy to act upon so that's a, that's another bit why did we choose passageway as a name well we were looking for something that was a nice friendly rounded brand that sort of signified movement um, and also signified an element of a journey as well. And obviously everyone knows what a passageway is, but it's also that sort of secondary meeting of secondary interpretation of passage and then a, a way um, as opposed to just the sort of alleyway between two places. Yeah. Okay. So if we say about, Oh, sorry, Johanna, would you about to jump in? I, I I always want to explore something a bit more in a bit more detail because because I think it's interesting that you brought up nudge theory and the fact that we're choice architects and that and because because I've read because I've read the book and 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 also I've read the the, da the David Halpin book as well and I think essentially what they're trying to say is actually we're humans and we're not just economic robots, isn't it? Because that's really the what's behind the theory that we don't act in the way that economists expect us to do because we're human and we we're, we're free-willed and we make choices about our everyday lives and that about what we want to do and and so this is about applying some of that human-centered element of it and what we do because we are free-thinking people rather than just treating us like economic commodities that do things without those feelings i, I think that's absolutely right yeah i mean I, I think you know typically if you if you look at the world of public transport um there is an awful lot of, um, how can I say it, lack of human-centered design around the information of the onto the access of the access points. You know, so if you think about, you know, I mean, a bus stop in is a classic sort of, um, you know, example of that, where you've got a lot of it is sort of, you know, outside in sort of thinking, you know, where you've got all the bus routes, which are number like 37, 319, 137, you know, whatever. And then you've got this, you know, uh, a totem with all those numbers on, route numbers, and then below it, you've got this sort of quite complicated route uh, timetable and, and all the other stuff around it. Um, and that is not really helping people make a choice. It's not really communicating is that bus going to go my way? Um, is it going to stop? How long is it going to? How long is it going to take to get from A to B? And so there's a lot of sort of, 
you know, people just look at it and go, oh my God, I don't know, you know, where I am and is it going to, is it going to suit my particular needs? So that's really sort of where we, we want to flip that on the head and say, well, look, here's the information about where all these routes are going. That was a real time map of the, of the route. So you can see contextually where it's going. Um, you can see how long it's going to take any disruption information. Um, and you could see onward travel status as well, because most journeys are not, you know, just going from point A to point B, but there's typically a point C and a point D after that as well. So if you're going through London, you may be going from, like the other day, I went to um, a trade show. And so I went from Clapham Junction to Euston and then got the train from Euston. Sorry, I went from Clapham Junction to Victoria, Victoria on the Victoria line to Euston, and then from Euston, I got the train up to Manchester. You know, so there's multiple steps on that journey. And it's not very clear at the beginning of my uh, journey if I have all the necessary information. Now, you might well say, well, you know, we're in a digital age now. Everyone should have a mobility app. You know, everyone should be looking at stuff on their phone, you know, to plan their personal journey. And that that's fair enough. You know, the, those mobility apps do provide an outstanding customer experience for the individual. But the problem is, and, you know, there was a report that came out, I think it was last year, by a, a body called, I think it's called, what are they called? London Transport Focus, uh, which is um, called Left Behind Londoners. And it's basically picks up or identifies the number of people in London who are digitally excluded or low digital users. And it's about two and a half million, right? So if you think that the population of London is what, eight, nine million now, something, I don't, I can't remember all the latest figures is, but you're, you're running at about, you know, 20 to 25% of the population of London that yeah. you know can't really use or don't have access to the latest personal digital planning information via smartphone apps. That, that, that's really interesting. So, so in terms of sort of like meeting that need of those digitally excluded people, you don't necessarily, you know, because what type? I mean, because actually, before we, before I ask my question, what do you mean by digitally excluded? Well, digitally excluded means basically they don't have phones. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't have a smartphone, uh, or they don't have, you know, um, uh, you know, maybe a PC or or a desktop. They might have they might have access to a desktop at home, but the definition is pretty much that they don't have, you know, the latest, um, you know, smartphone technology. They may have an old Nokia, for example, um, but they're, they don't, they're not using, you know, it to download apps and things like that. And I guess when we sort of like talk, I mean, because I think a lot of people would be surprised at how high that number is for yeah. just yeah. our capital city in, in the UK. Yeah. That is quite, you know, I mean, because you're know, just sort of like that's just under sort of like 30 percent of the population. Well, there's two elements. There. One is digitally excluded and one is low digital usage. So digitally excluded is about 400,000 in London. And that data actually came from a Lloyd's report that was published in uh, 2021. Um, so that was just rolled into this particular one. The other side is low digital users um, and they're about two million. So a low digital user is someone who you know, doesn't really, uh, you know, they may be on pay as you go, for example, and so they don't want to download or, or you know, access uh, the latest apps. They may have, you know, not the latest technology, yada, yada, yada. But they're, they're basically not quite excluded, but they're definitely, 
not going to be downloading uh, mobility apps. Well, also, yeah. that, I would say that that means also if you're using pay as you go and you have your data turned off, you're not having any real time journey updates. So <laughs> by the time you get to Wi Fi, it's too late for you to have amended mm. the journey or whatever. I mean, the ironic thing as well is that a lot of these people who are digitally excluded or low digital users, they are a core customer base for public transport in London as well. Yeah. Because of their demographic profile. Yeah. So so in terms of sort of like passageway then, how does your product fill that gap and meet the, the digitally excluded or the low digitally yeah. enabled um, customer then? So what we do is that we uh, enable any screen to become a real-time passenger information digital sign. So showing all the uh, appropriate public transport information around that particular place. And we've got different templates for different scenarios. So, for example, if it was a bus shelter, you've got a particular type of sign that's deployed at a at a bus shelter with route maps and you know real-time uh, departure information, disruption information, et cetera, et cetera. But we also have these other ones, these other digital signs that we actually distribute free of charge to any organization within the M25 um, uh, that are they're, they're multimodal effectively. And they are for schools and hospitals, um, shopping centers, workplaces, anywhere, really. Any organization can have one. and But they are uh, showing all the public transport options around a particular place. Um, and provide real-time uh, information and updates around those uh, options. So for London, that is, you know, bus, bike, tram, train, um, tube, et cetera. Cable car? You know, the cable car, actually, I think they tried to sell that, didn't they? I think, I'm not even sure that. So, the, I mean, we actually, we don't at the moment. So TFL... Uh, you may have noticed that the TFL um, boats that are going up and down the Thames are no longer called, uh, they're not TFL boats anymore, they're now Uber boats, aren't yeah. they? So uh, that data is no longer available within the TFL API. So we've had to basically pull that as a mode from our signs, unfortunately. All right. For the benefit of anyone listening, is your Zoom background at the moment, we're talking to you through Zoom, you do actually have one of these signs in the background. So as you're speaking, I am referencing the picture behind you. Yeah, that's a smart butter. Yeah. Very snazzy. Yeah. So when you say they're available for free, is that your... Who, how are you funding the free ones? So, yeah, well, we, we are funded by Transport for London. Uh, and Transport for London effectively pay us to distribute these digital signs so our job is to you know ensure that they are uh, curated correctly uh, they're properly managed and delivered to the customer and we only we deliver them as urls so there's i mean we can do hardware as well but typically you know they are for display on a pre-existing screen within a, a workplace or elsewhere um, and we supply them as the uh, supply them as this self-updating web page um, and ensure that it works on their particular screen. And then, you know, we host it and support it over time. Oh, right. And is that, has, how long is that? Pro- I have to admit, I was unaware of that program. Uh, we do, we've been doing it for a while now. Um, I mean, I think we've got, a, well, we've, we've got a few hundred signs live across London. Um, 
you know, there are, I think there's, you know, there is always massive opportunity to, you know, you would have thought that with millions of organizations across London, there would be millions of signs. We don't have millions of signs. Uh, I think in total at the moment, we've got about four or 500 sign licenses uh, for London. So, you know, sort of heading in the right direction, but we would like to see them, you know, in many more organizations around London. So what sort of organizations are you targeting there? Where, you know, sort of like in terms of meeting this need, where do you think they'd be most useful to get that um, trajectory? Uh, we've got lots of different locations at the moment. So you'll find them in most of the hospitals around London. Um, so they were put in, um, well, TFL actually pushed that. But over during the pandemic, they were uh, rolled out to nearly every hospital. Uh, you'll find them in uh, a lot of schools um, and in some doctor surgeries and quite a few workplaces now as well. So in the headquarters of AXA in the city, that's a recent example. And also we actually put in a 65 inch screen or 75 inch screen actually into, do you know, Paternoster Square? You come across that. It's it's a yes. nice, beautiful office complex by St. Paul's. So we put in, they're doing a new uh, refurbished office complex there. And we put a beautiful 75 inch screen portrait style uh, into the foyer, uh, which has this real time information on as well. All right. But I mean, they could be really pretty much anywhere, as long as, you know, the organization in case, you know, in, in, in the organization that you're talking to has, uh, you know, sufficient traffic, human traffic going back and forth to, to warrant, you know, uh, promoting public transport. And it's great for TFL because, you know, what better form of advertising can you have than real time information? I mean, it, it generates demand for their services um, in a yeah, sort of non-intrusive manner. Um, yeah. And, you know, people really, the, the feedback we have is really, really, really positive. So is this a model that could be expanded to other transport for areas easily? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we we have struggled to get beyond London. I mean, we've done projects in Melbourne, for example, in Australia. And we've done, we were one of, we won an accelerator in for transport for Wales. Um, and we've done projects um, uh, over in Somerset as well. Um, and, you know, we are in constant discussions with transport authorities, you know, and other sort of our partners who we tend to work with uh, about deploying elsewhere as well. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, I know with, with the, the Rail Innovation Group, you know, obviously it's about railways, um, and uh, the thing with railway stations is that there is quite a lot already in terms of digital signage in railways. You know, if you like when I was going through Euston the other day, I mean, there's some beautiful screens up there, you know, talking about all the next train to X or, you know, departures from X, you know, whatever platform. And that's great. You know, again, it's all people leading people into those trains and, that, and those services moving off. There's not actually much coming the other way. So when you come out from your train and you're thinking, where do I go? You know, I need to get down to Soho or whatever. You know, you you don't really know wh where to go and which bus is the right bus to get. Um, and there are, there are some QR code things in there as well. But I think as people are moving through the built environment, you know, somewhere like that where it's very rapid, everyone's sort of, there's a high human turnover there. 
Um, there's not a lot of dwell time unless you're standing there waiting for a train. Um, there's not a lot of dwell time for, you know, people scanning QR codes and then looking at their device. You know, really you want something that aids people as they move through that built environment, you know, so in the similar way as people are moving through to patching their train. And my sense of that is, my sense of that is, I, I don't know if we're at the same show, but I was in Manchester the other day. Um, was it occurred to me as you come out of Houston is they just want to get rid of you. Just, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I was going to say that, well, that's always the case um, with um, with stations, um, sort of like having worked in stations and on trains is that um, I think um, stations do just want to get rid of you. But I just want to sort of like explore sort of like that challenge. Yeah. And also what we started the conversation with in terms of, of information and the fact that it's not designed for the human because I think, do you think part of the issue, you know, sort of like thinking about that Euston case study is that it's designed by railway people and not enough by people who are actually travelling and see it. So, so there's almost an assumption that you know the system designed into the design process. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a, a very uh, valid point, and I think it's it goes back again to that sort of, you know, the the example I gave of the bus stop, you know, where you've got a um, a flagpole with a number of a bunch of numbers on it, and then this you know timetable that's put underneath it. A lot of that is you know organisation out information, rather than you know considering what the customer needs in order to make their journey easier from a to b um, yes and i i would say my other just i think about a previous project i worked on but it was it was basically that even the waypoints are described by the people who live in the city or know the city so the things that they're highlighting that the bus will go past doesn't mean anything to someone who's yeah. on who actually needs the information it will be like a local colloquialism or a local landmark i find it funny here in london particularly that lots of the buses end at pub names do they? All right. <laughs> I, 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 I never knew that. And I know the bus right. is quite well in London. As well. I never really thought about that. Yeah, but it doesn't mean um, to international people. <laughs> but just, just thinking about, you know, sort of like, you know, I know, I know we want to talk about rail culture or transport culture in general and that thought about, you know, because within recent years there has been a pivot towards you know sort of like you know we, we we all know the slogans putting the customer first putting the passenger at the heart of everything we do what whatever you know slogan you want to try there's lots of you know choose there's lots of them around um what I mean, how do we really do that because it still doesn't seem to be really working and what would what would your challenge be as an sme to you know rail or transport providers to really start doing that and thinking about that well, that's a million-dollar question, that one, isn't it? I mean, you know, <laughs> how do you get you know the whole massive juggernaut to change direction and turn on a pin? Um, I think that you know that the, it's a multi-dimensional question. I mean, the, there is you know there's the physical architecture of the things. So um, there are many more architectural firms that are applying human design elements to the built environment now. So they're less sort of moving cattle from point A to point B, but to making that experience as humans move through that environment more efficient, more friendly, especially, you know, in terms of accessibility for, um, you know, uh, 
those people that you know are less able-bodied than everybody else um and i think when it comes to information and putting information together in in a manner that makes it easier for um everybody to interpret and act upon and you know that helps as i say uh, as i mentioned earlier on to nudge them i think that really what you've got to do is to you, you do sort of need to flip everything on its head and 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 consider less you know the 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 structure of the information but actually the the journey that people are going on uh, to get them from a to b so as an example if you think about you know maybe route 319 for example which is a bus route you know that doesn't really mean anything to anybody but if you were to plot um you know apart from the end destination might mean something sloan square and starting at clapham junction or whatever but you know if you would have if you plot that that route on a map um and you say these are all the stops on that map that this plate this bus is going to get to and this is when it's going to stop this is how long it's going to take to get from from where you are now to each of these ones then you know most people aren't going to you know that particular they're not just going to stop at that stop but they're going to get off that stop and then they're going to go and walk somewhere or go and meet someone or do something and so you know if you you know plot all these things on a map you've got context around that and um, human context that says okay well i'm going from you know this is i've got to get to there and then i'm going to go and walk over there that way a little bit you know so you're you're saying it rather than it being you know a whole bunch of just raw data you're actually trying to contextualize it for people and and put it into terms that they are they can easily reference and within their own mind so actually it's not just about my human need it's also about the system with it within which i interact with and there's sort of like at the moment transport's a bit detached from what i do in my journey and where i'm going to within that contextual system I think so for, for many people, if you've got a personal journey planner on your smartphone, uh, then that does a lot of that for you. Yeah. Uh, that's really its purpose, isn't it? Is to, you know, make your journey from A to B nice and easy peasy. But if you're one of the digitally excluded or low digital users, or you're new to the city and I've never been here before a tourist, then actually a lot of those you don't have access to those things and all you've got is that sort of raw data, um, then it's much harder for those people. Mm. And I wonder if that's why people, I know people who are not digitally excluded, you often end up looking like, looking for, so in a new city, you'll look up the bus and hope that it's on Google Maps because it's got a line that blobs through all the places that you're likely to be interested. That's right. In. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Okay. So you, you talked about the juggernaut of rail, uh, of <laughs> the established industry. So we're going to ask you the question we ask a lot of SMEs, which is, what are your main challenges dealing with this juggernaut? Well, I think, you know, I, and I'm sure that other SMEs have, have, or startups have had exactly the same issue, um, is that, you know, by, by nature, you know, we are a, a small organisation. And, you know, that has a number of positives, you know, we're, in, we're innovative, we're entrepreneurial, we can, you know, turn things around very quickly or come up with new ideas, invent things. But when it comes to procurement uh, from the larger organisations, the transport authorities, 
they don't really think like that. You know, what they do is that they say, right, well, we need to get, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, you know, we need to go and put in uh, 300 or whatever, widgets or whatever. Um, and then they put a tender out. And with the tender, there's a whole range of criteria that go with that tender as well. Um, typically around, um, you know, sort of financial uh, strength, et cetera. You know, how much you've got to be a certain turnover in order to be able to get something over the line with them. So that, that sort of excludes us from a lot of those tenders. Um, and what we do in response to that is that we go in with larger organizations, um, partner with them, you know, so, um, you know, for the likes, just as an example, you know, Trueform is our hardware manufacturer uh, and, you know, VIX is a, a technical supplier um, who provides real-time information amongst other things. So what we would do is that we would go in under their umbrella uh, and we bring to their tender innovation uh, you know, and, the, and a new stuff that is low risk for them, but possibly gives them uh, an edge against their other competitors that they're tendering against. Um, and we found that works pretty well, to be honest. Yeah. Well, it must have worked for you to get this TFL work. Uh, well, we've got that independently, actually. But right. uh, but other yeah, no, uh, but other other projects, you know, so. I don't know, we're, we're talking with people in various uh, elements, you know, whether it's in North America or, or elsewhere. And typically we're going in with a bigger partner. You know, we're, we're going in as the little guys on that, but bringing in, uh, it's it's almost like, uh, you know, if you were, if you were the, the uh, you know, uh, I don't know, a big organization and you say, right, well, we need to redo something or other, you might bring in a specialist team to go and do something. Uh, and we're that specialist team, the go and bring something unique and innovative, you know, with yeah. the blue sky guys. <laughs> I think a lot of the tier ones like that, though, to bring in a startup or an SME to provide that innovation. Yeah. When you say tier one, you mean tier one suppliers, do you? Yeah. yeah. Suppliers. But I think also there's sort of a public policy backing for that to partner with smaller suppliers. Yeah. So, I think it's beyond that, though. I think it is just sort of like you, because, of, as as you've alluded to, Chris, about being more, you know, agile and you know, and and freer in thinking, and maybe closer to the ground of some of the the people that are buying what you want to to sell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we're the ones we're, we're the ones that can take the risk effectively, um, and with the solutions quicker, probably. That's right. Yeah, yeah, leaner. Yeah. Is there anything surprised you about working in this wider industry? Oh, I think you know one of the things. Um, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm. This isn't the first organization I've started. So you know, I used to run a digital agency, and I built a, a SaaS platform, a software as a service platform, previously that had been acquired. Um, and you know, what, what I found in those other experiences were things were moving quite a bit faster um whereas in the world of public transport ironically things don't seem to move that quickly um which is good in some ways you know because when you're in with an organization you you tend to be in with them for a very long time but opportunities uh seems to be quite thin on the ground um so they come up 
you know, not very frequently. Um, and also the, the sort of gestation period for them is quite extended as well. So you might think, well, they might put out a tender. Someone might put out a tender. Now we'll consider it, you know, gather, gathering interest for a tender. And then it goes to a tender. Then it goes through the whole thing. You know, so it might be six or nine months before actually you get going on something. Um, and again, you know, as a startup, you really want to move quick. You, you want to get something done. You want to get it out. You want to talk about it. And you want to get all excited about it. Yes. Um, well, hopefully you can be excited about new future projects. Well, uh, yeah, and we've got a few on the boil, um, you know. But again, you know, they take they take a while to to go from conversation to you know, yeah. getting it over the line. So I won't ask you when we're going to hear about them then. Um, no. Okay. Hi <laughs> <laughs> there. Uh, not one that's go that is live now. Uh, but we've not been we we can't talk about it just yet uh, because there's uh, you know a news uh, ring fence on it. Uh, but hopefully we'll be able to talk about that within a week or so. Brilliant, exciting. Then we'll add that into the uh, comments for this episode. If it's if it's news by then, it'll go out. It is news, yeah. Um, right. Uh, last question, which is a one we ask all our guests, is what advice would you have for new suppliers? Um. Right. I think that um, my my advice would be to build relationships, um, and I think that it's quite it is quite tricky, you know, coming into a new market and trying to make things happen. Um, and as a startup, you want those things, as I say, to happen very quickly. But in this marketplace uh, where you and I operate in, it, things don't happen very quickly. So the best route in my opinion, is to build relationships. And that's to build relationships with, um, you know, those tier one suppliers, um, you know, and build, you know, show them how you can add value to what it is they're doing, but also to build relationships with um, the transport authorities and say, you know, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. This is what we'd like to bring to the table. You might not have anything right now for us, but, you know, please, keep us in your ecosystem and then when something does come up they will come to you brilliant okay i, I kind of got a bit of a follow-up to that one because obviously the whole sort of like reason doctor for rail innovation group is that we help you make those connections and build those relationships yeah. which, which obviously we do through our mentoring and, and networking events that, that that we have but um where else do you find your 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 contacts you know just for our listeners well um there's a couple of other groups that i'm uh we are members of um there's there's i mean it's well, i'm going a bit geeky now but uh not that you guys are geeky right you guys are really not geeky but uh, there is another one called the sign design society which if you're into wayfinding uh, and human navigation through the built environment the sign design society is, is the one for you uh, and they have a lot of you know community talks and things like that um, there's also the real-time information group uh, where we do where basically all the tier one suppliers are uh, members of that uh, so that's really important for us as well um, and going to trade shows and things like that so we are and um, 
I mean, I think Liam and I were probably at the same show, different days. And I mean, I, I actually personally, I struggled with that show a little bit personally, but I, I wasn't that impressed. But other people I know have, have really like it. Um, but think, you know, we are at the Connected Places Catapult Summit mm-hmm. uh, next month in March, and you know, that's about it's not just a public transport show; it's about bringing innovation into uh, the UK society, community, economy. Um, and so it's all those people who are interested in that sort of stuff, which includes a lot of public transport. Um, we, you know, we're, we're going there and we're going to, we've got a little stand and we hope to meet lots of people and network through that as well. So it's a mix, really. It is. So, so I've, I've kind of got a, just a little bit of a follow up um, on that, because um, obviously when that part of that is about, you know, going to lots of stuff. And I think we hear that a lot from from our members is that it is about, you know, spreading yourself out far and wide to get yourself known. But also, you know, sort of like a couple of those that you've mentioned, there's obviously cost involved. So how do, how do you trade that off between being a startup and having to be sort of like, you know, have an eye on your balance sheet yeah. um, well so as you know, sort of like growing the business as well yeah you're right i mean you know there's lots of marketing opportunities that one can un- one can do um and it's really trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work um i mean the good thing and we've done it with you guys was um the uh world passenger festival um yeah. uh, so quite a lot of these shows have the startup village uh where you can get basically a free pod um a sort of like one meter desk space with a graphic behind you and you stand there and hope people come along and chat to you but you know it's also quite good to, for networking with other people as well so i mean what i would take up any of those free opportunities you know i mean they are only free you know so you you're not going to be in the best place in the exhibition but it is about being out there and you know shaking hands and and being present um and we also, you know, we are paying for the Connected Places Summit. I mean, it's not huge amounts of money, but, you know, we know that those are the right people for us. And, you know, the, I think there are other shows as well, but it's, you know, you've got to know with, I mean, there is always the argument, right? So would am I better off just taking five people out for a slap up lunch, uh, you know, individually or collectively? And, you know, getting sitting down with them at a table and, and, you know, having spending loads of money on them to, you know, introduce myself and say hello. Or am I better off, you know, doing a, an exhibition and, you know, being in, in that sort of place or, or going on a golf course and, and uh, you know, chatting with someone. You know, I can't play golf, actually, but... I was just thinking, you still do that. Yeah, but, no, but There's no different advice for me to play golf. <laughs> Learn, don't you? And I can play. (laughs) (laughs) Or go shooting or something like that. You know, there are all these things that people could do. But, um, you know, to my mind, uh, you know, trade shows are the appropriate place for us. Uh, And, you know, other networking events like, you know, your your events that you run and the ones that the other uh, groups are where members of run as well. You know, and it's well, we blog a lot. You know, I do blog a lot, um, and I'm quite present on LinkedIn. Keep talking about stuff, and you know, hopefully, people, you know, appreciate it and and start um, yeah. building a little momentum and appear on podcasts. 
and appear on podcasts. Yeah, I love being on podcasts. Chris, cool. thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Really, really interesting. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Moves Us. We hope we moved you. For more episodes, you'll definitely want to subscribe to our channel. Well, next time.